Chapter Twenty of Sir Nigel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. Sir Nigel, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Twenty: How the English attempted the Castle of La Bruyere. For some minutes Nigel remained motionless upon the crest of the hill, his heart like lead within him, and his eyes fixed upon the huge grey walls which contained his unhappy henchman. He was roused by a sympathetic hand upon his shoulder, and the voice of his young prisoner in his ear. "'Pest!' said he. "'They have some of your birds in their cage, have they not?' "'What then, my friend? Keep your heart high. Is it not the chance of war? Today them, tomorrow thee, and death at last for us all?' and yet I had rather they were in any hands than those of Oliver the Butcher. "'By St. Paul, we cannot suffer it!' cried Nigel distractedly. "'This man has come with me from my own home. He has stood between me and death before now. It goes to my very heart that he should call upon me in vain. I pray you, Raoul, to use your wits, for mine are all curdled in my head. Tell me what I should do, and how I may bring him help.' The Frenchman shrugged his shoulders. "'as easy to get a lamb unscathed out of a wolf's lair "'as a prisoner safe from La Brogniere. "'Nay, Nigel, whither do you go? "'Have you indeed taken leave of your wits?' "'The squire had spurred his horse down the hillside "'and never halted until he was within a bowshot of the gate. "'The French prisoner followed hard behind him "'with a buzz of reproaches and expostulations. "'You are mad, Nigel!' he cried. "'What do you hope to do, then? "'Would you carry the castle with your own hands? "'Halt, man, halt in the name of the Virgin!' But Nigel had no plan in his head, and only obeyed the fevered impulse to do something to ease his thoughts. He paced his horse up and down, waving his spear and shouting insults and challenges to the garrison. Over the high wall a hundred jeering faces looked down upon him. So rash and wild was his action that it seemed to those within to mean some trap, so the drawbridge was still held high, and none ventured forth to seize him. A few long-range arrows pattered on the rocks, and then, with a deep, booming sound, a huge stone, hurled from a mangonel, sang over the head of the two squires, and crushed into splinters among the boulders behind them. The Frenchman seized Nigel's bridle, and forced him further from the gateway. "'By the dear Virgin!' he cried. "'I care not to have those pebbles around my ears, yet I cannot go back alone, so it is very clear, my crazed comrade, that you must come also. Now we are beyond their reach.' "'But see, my friend Nigel, who are those who crown the height?' The sun had sunk behind the western ridge, but the glowing sky was fringed at its lower edge by a score of ruddy twinkling points. A body of horsemen showed hard and black upon the bare hill. Then they dipped down the slope into the valley, whilst a band of footmen followed behind. "'They are my people,' cried Nigel joyously. "'Come, my friend, hasten that we may take counsel what we should do.' Sir Robert Knowles rode a bowshot in front of his men, and his brow was as black as night. Beside him, with crestfallen face, his horse bleeding, his armour dinted and soiled, was the hot-headed knight, Sir James Astley. A fierce discussion raged between them. "'I have done my devoir as best I might,' said Astley. "'Alone I had ten of them at my sword-point. I know not how I have lived to tell it.' "'What is your devoir to me? Where are my thirty bowmen?' cried Knowles in bitter wrath. Ten lie dead upon the ground, and twenty are worse than dead in yonder castle. 
and all because you must needs show all men how bold you are, and ride into a bushman such as a child could see. Alas, for my own folly that ever I should have trusted such a one as you with the handling of men. By God, Sir Robert, you shall answer to me for those words, cried Astley with a choking voice. Never has a man dared to speak to me as you have done this day. As long as I hold the king's order, I shall be master, and by the Lord I shall hang you, James, on a near tree if I have further cause of offence. How now, Nigel? I see by yonder white horse that you at least have not failed me. I will speak with you anon. Percy, bring up your men, and let us gather round this castle, for, as I hope for my soul's salvation, I will not leave until I have my archers, or the head of him who holds them. That night the English lay thick round the fortress of La Brouinière so that none might come forth from it. But if none could come forth, it was hard to see how any could win their way in, for it was full of men, the walls were high and strong, and a deep, dry ditch girt it round. But the hatred and the fear which its master had raised over the whole countryside could now be plainly seen, for during the night the brushwood men and the villagers came in from all parts with offers of such help as they could give for the intaking of the castle. Knowles set them cutting bushes and tying them into faggots. When morning came, he rode out before the wall, and he held counsel with his knights and squires as to how he should enter in. By noon, said he, we shall have so many faggots that we may make our way over the ditch. Then we will beat in the gates, and so win a footing. The young Frenchman had come with Nigel to the conference, and now, amid the silence which followed the leader's proposal, he asked if he might be heard. He was clad in the brazen armour which Nigel had taken from the red ferret. "'It may be that it is not for me to join in your counsel,' said he, "'seeing that I am a prisoner and a Frenchman. But this man is the enemy of all, and we of France owe him a debt even as you do, since many a good Frenchman has died in his cellars. For this reason I crave to be heard.' "'We will hear you,' said Knowles. "'I have come from Evrin yesterday,' said he. Sir Henry Spinfor, Sir Peter Leroy, and many other brave knights and squires lie there, with a good company of men, all of whom would very gladly join with you to destroy this butcher and his castle. For it is well known amongst us that his deeds are neither good nor fair. There are also bombards which we could drag over the hills, and so beat down this iron gate. If you so order it, I will ride to Evra and bring my companions back with me. Indeed, Robert, said Percy, it is in my mind that this Frenchman speaks very wisely and well. "'And when we have taken the castle, what then?' asked Knowles. "'Then you could go upon your way, fair sir, and we upon ours. "'Or, if it please you better, you could draw together on yonder hill, "'and we on this one, so that the valley lies between us. "'Then, if any cavalier wished to advance himself, "'or to shed a vow and exalt his lady, an opening might be found for him. "'Surely it would be shame if so many brave men drew together, "'and no small deed were to come of it.' Nigel clasped his captive's hand to show his admiration and esteem, but Knowles shook his head. "'Things are not ordered thus, save in the tales of the minstrels,' said he. "'I have no wish that your people at Evran should know our numbers and our plans. "'I am not in this land for knight-errantry, but I am here to make head against the king's enemies. "'Has no one aught else to say?' Percy pointed to the small outlying fortalice upon the knoll, on which also flew the flag of the bloody head. This smaller castle, Robert, is of no great strength, and cannot hold more than fifty men. It is built, as I conceive it, that no one should seize the high ground and shoot down into the other. Why should we not turn all our strength upon it, since it is the weaker of the twain? But again the young leader shook his head. If I should take it, said he, 
I am still no nearer to my desire, nor will it avail me in getting back my bowmen. It may cost a score of men, and what profit shall I have from it? Had I bombards, I might place them on yonder hill, but having none, it is of little use to me. It may be, said Nigel, that they have scant food or water, and so must come forth to fight us. I have made inquiry of the peasants, Knowles answered, and they are of one mind that there is a well within the castle and a great store of food. Nay, gentlemen, there is no way before us save to take it by arms, and no spot where we can attempt it save through the great gate. Soon we will have so many faggots that we can cast them down into the ditch and so win our way across. I have ordered them to cut a pine tree on the hill and shear the branches so that we may beat down the gate with it. But what is now amiss, and why do they run forward to the castle? A buzz had risen from the soldiers in the camp, and they all crowded in one direction, rushing toward the castle wall. The knights and squires rode after them, and when in view of the main gate the cause of the disturbance lay before them. On the tower above the portal three men were standing in the garb of English archers, ropes round their necks, and their hands bound behind them. Their comrades surged below them with cries of recognition and of pity. "'It is Ambrose!' cried one. "'Surely it is Ambrose of Ingleton!' "'Yes, in truth, I see his yellow hair. And the other, him with the beard, it is Lockwood of Skipton. Alas for his wife, who keeps the booth by the bridgehead of Ribble. I wot not who the third may be.' "'It is little Johnny Allspey, the youngest man in the company,' cried old Watt, with the tears running down his cheeks. "'Twas I who brought him from his home. Alas, alas! Foul feather day that ever I coaxed him from his mother's side, that he might perish in a far land!' There was a sudden flourish of a trumpet, and the drawbridge fell. Across it strode a portly man with a faded herald's coat. He halted warily upon the farther side, and his voice boomed like a drum. "'I would speak with your leader,' he cried. Knowles rode forward. "'Have I your knightly word that I may advance unscathed with all courteous entreaty, as befits a herald?' Knowles nodded his head. The man came slowly and pompously forward. "'I am the messenger and liege servant,' said he, "'of the high baron Oliver de Saint-Yvon, lord of La Brogniere. He bids me to say that if you continue your journey and molest him no further, he will engage upon his part to make no further attack upon you. As to the men whom he holds, he will enrol them in his own honourable service, for he has need of longbowmen, and has heard much of their skill. But if you constrain him, or cause him further displeasure by remaining before his castle, he hereby gives you warning that he will hang these three men over his gateway, and every morning another three, until all have been slain. This he has sworn upon the rood of Calvary, and, as he has said, so he will do upon jeopardy of his soul. Robert Knowles looked grimly at the messenger. "'You may thank the saints that you have my promise,' said he. "'Else would I have stripped that lying tabard from thy back, and the skin beneath it from thy bones, that thy master might have a fitting answer to his message. Tell him that I hold him and all that are within his castle as hostage for the lives of my men.' and that, should he dare to do them scathe, he and every man that is with him shall hang upon his battlements. Go, and go quickly, lest my patience fail. There was that in Knoll's cold grey eyes, and in his manner of speaking those last words, which sent the portly envoy back at a quicker gait than he had come. As he vanished into the gloomy arch of the gateway, the drawbridge swung up with a creak and a rattle behind him. A few minutes later a rough-bearded fellow stepped out over the portal where the condemned archers stood, 
and, seizing the first by the shoulders, he thrust him over the wall. A cry burst from the man's lips, and a deep groan from those of his comrades below, as he fell with a jerk, which sent him halfway up to the parapet again, and then, after dancing like a child's toy, swung slowly backward and forward, with limp limbs and twisted neck. The hangman turned and bowed in mock reverence to the spectators beneath him. He had not yet learned in a land of puny archers how sure and how strong is the English bow. Half a dozen men, old Watt amongst them, had run forward toward the wall. They were too late to save their comrades, but at least their deaths were speedily avenged. The man was in the act of pushing off the second prisoner when an arrow crashed through his head, and he fell stone dead upon the parapet. But even in falling he had given the fatal thrust, and a second russet figure swung beside the first against the dark background of the castle wall. There only remained the young lad, Johnny Allspay, who stood shaking with fear, an abyss below him, and the voices of those who would hurl him over it behind. There was a long pause before anyone would come forth to dare those deadly arrows. Then a fellow, crouching double, ran forward from the shelter, keeping the young archer's body as a shield between him and danger. "'Aside, John! Aside!' cried his comrades from below. The youth sprang as far as the rope would allow him, and slipped it half over his face in the effort. Three arrows flashed past his side, and two of them buried themselves in the body of the man behind. A howl of delight burst from the spectators as he dropped first upon his knees, and then upon his face. A life for a life was no bad bargain. But it was only a short respite which the skill of his comrades had given to the young archer. Over the parapet there appeared a ball of brass, then a pair of great brazen shoulders, and lastly the full figure of an armoured man. He walked to the edge, and they heard his hoarse guffaw of laughter as the arrows clanged and clattered against his impenetrable mail. He slapped his breastplate as he jeered at them. Well he knew that at the distance no dart ever sped by mortal hands could cleave through his plates of metal. So he stood the great burly butcher of La Brauvinière, with head uptossed, laughing insolently at his foes. Then, with slow and ponderous tread, he walked towards his boy victim, seized him by the ear, and dragged him across so that the rope might be straight. Seeing that the noose had slipped across the face, he tried to push it down, but the mailed glove hampering him, he pulled it off, and grasped the rope above the lad's head with his naked hand. Quick as a flash, old Watt's arrow had sped, and the butcher sprang back with a howl of pain, his hand skewered by a clothyard shaft. As he shook it furiously at his enemies, a second grazed his knuckles. With a brutal kick of his metal-shod feet, he hurled young Allspay over the edge, looked down for a few moments at his death agonies, and then walked slowly from the parapet, nursing his dripping hand, the arrow still ringing loudly upon his back-piece as he went. The archers below, enraged at the death of their comrades, leapt and howled like a pack of ravening wolves. "'By St. Dunstan,' said Percy, looking round at their flushed faces, "'if ever we are to carry it, now is the moment, for these men will not be stopped if hate can take them forward.' "'You are right, Thomas,' cried Knowles. "'Gather together twenty men-at-arms, each with his shield to cover him. Astley, do you place the bowmen so that no head may show at window or parapet?' "'Nigel, I pray you to order the country folk forward with their fardels of faggots. "'Let the others bring up the lopped pine-trees which lies yonder behind the horse-lines. Ten men-at-arms can bear it on the right, and ten on the left, 
having shields over their heads. The gate once down, let every man rush in, and God help the better cause. Swiftly, and yet quietly, the dispositions were made, for these were old soldiers whose daily trade was war. In little groups the archers formed in front of each slit or crevice in the walls, whilst others scanned the battlements with wary eyes, and sped an arrow at every face which gleamed for an instant above them. The garrison shot forth a shower of crossbow bolts and an occasional stone from their engine, but so deadly was the hail which rained upon them that they had no time to dwell upon their aim, and their discharges were wild and harmless. Under cover of the shafts of the bowmen a line of peasants ran unscathed to the edge of the ditch, each hurling in the bundle which he bore in his arms, and then hurrying back for another one. In twenty minutes a broad pathway of faggots lay level with the ground upon one side and the gate upon the other. With the loss of two peasants slain by bolts and one archer crushed by a stone, the ditch had been filled up. All was ready for the battering ram. With a shout, twenty picked men rushed forward with the pine tree under their arms, the heavy end turned towards the gate. The arbalesters on the tower leaned over and shot into the midst of them, but could not stop their advance. Two dropped, but the others, raising their shields, ran onward, still shouting, crossed the bridge of faggots, and came with a thundering crash against the door. It splintered from base to arch, but kept its place. Swinging their mighty weapon, the storming party thudded and crashed upon the gate, every blow loosening and widening the cracks which rent it from end to end. The three knights, with Nigel, the Frenchman Raoul, and the other squires, stood beside the ram, cheering on the men, and chanting to the rhythm of the swing with a loud, Ha! at every blow. A great stone loosened from the parapet, roared through the air, and struck Sir James Astley and another of the attackers. But Nigel and the Frenchman had taken their places in an instant, and the ram thudded and smashed with greater energy than ever. Another blow, and another. The lower part was staving inward, but the great central bar still held firm. Surely another minute would beat it from its sockets. But suddenly from above there came a great deluge of liquid. A hogshead of it had been tilted from the battlements until soldiers, bridge, and ram were equally drenched in yellow slime. Knowles rubbed his gauntlet in it, held it to his visor, and smelled it. "'Back! back!' he cried. "'Back before it is too late!' There was a small barred window above their heads at the side of the gate. A ruddy glare shone through it, and then a blazing torch was tossed down upon them. In a moment the oil had caught, and the whole place was a sheet of flame. The fir-tree they carried, the faggots beneath them, their very weapons were all in a blaze. To right and left the men sprang down into the dry ditch, rolling with screams upon the ground in their endeavour to extinguish the flames. The knights and squires, protected by their armour, strove hard, stamping and slapping, to each of those who had but leather jacks to shield their bodies. From above a ceaseless shower of darts and of stones were poured down upon them, whilst on the other hand the archers, Seeing the greatness of the danger, ran up to the edge of the ditch, and shot fast and true at every face which showed above the wall. Scorched, wearied, and bedraggled, the remains of the storming party clambered out of the ditch as best they could, clutching at the friendly hands held down to them, and so limped their way back amid the taunts and howls of their enemies. A long pile of smouldering cinders was all that remained of their bridge, and on it lay Astley and six other red-hot men glowing in their armour. Knowles clinched his hands as he looked back at the ruin that was wrought, and then surveyed the group of men who stood or lay around him, nursing their burned limbs, and scowling up at the exultant figures who waved on the castle wall. 
Badly scorched himself, the young leader had no thought for his own injuries and the rage and grief which racked his soul. "'We will build another bridge,' he cried. "'Set the peasants binding faggots once more.' But a thought had flashed through Nigel's mind. "'See, fair sir,' said he, "'the nails of yonder door are red-hot, and the wood as white as ashes. Surely we can break our way through it.' "'By the Virgin, you speak truly,' cried the French squire. "'If we can cross the ditch, the gate will not stop us. Come, Nigel, for our fair lady's sakes I will race you who will reach it first, England or France.' Alas for all the wise words of the good Chandos! Alas for all the lessons in order and discipline learned from the wary Knolls! In an instant, forgetful of all things but this noble challenge, Nigel was running at the top of his speed for the burning gate. Close at his heels was the Frenchman, blowing and gasping as he rushed along in his brazen armour. Behind came a stream of howling archers and men-at-arms, like a flood which has broken its dam. Down they slipped into the ditch, rushed across it, and clambered on each other's backs up the opposite side. Nigel, Raoul, and two archers gained a foothold in front of the burning gate at the same moment. With blows and kicks they burst it to pieces, and dashed with a yell of triumph through the dark archway beyond. For a moment they thought with mad rapture that the castle was carried. A dark tunnel lay before them, down which they rushed. But alas! At the farther end it was blocked by a second gateway, as strong as that which had been burned. In vain they beat upon it with their swords and axes. On each side the tunnel was pierced with slits, and the crossbow bolts discharged at only a few yards' distance crashed through armour as if it were cloth, and laid man after man upon the stones. They raged and leapt before the great iron-clamped barrier, but the wall itself was as easy to tear down. It was bitter to draw back, but it was madness to remain. Nigel looked round and saw that half his men were down. At the same moment Raoul sank with a gasp at his feet, a bolt driven to its socket through the links of the camile which guarded his neck. Some of the archers, seeing that certain death awaited them, were already running back to escape from the fatal passage. "'By St. Paul!' cried Nigel hotly. "'Would you leave our wounded where this butcher may lay his hands upon them? Let the archers shoot inwards and hold them back from the slits. Now, let each man raise one of our comrades, lest we leave our honour in the gate of this castle.' With a mighty effort he had raised Raoul upon his shoulders, and staggered with him to the edge of the ditch. Several men were waiting below where the steep bank shielded them from the arrows, and to them Nigel handed down his wounded friend, and each archer in turn did the same. Again and again Nigel went back until no one lay in the tunnel save seven who had died there. Thirteen wounded were laid in the shelter of the ditch, and there they must remain until night came to cover them. Meanwhile the bowmen on the farther side protected them from attack, and also prevented the enemy from all attempts to build up the outer gate. The gaping smoke-blackened arch was all that they could show for a loss of thirty men. But that, at least, Knowles was determined to keep. Burned and bruised, but unconscious of either pain or fatigue for the turmoil of his spirit within him, Nigel knelt by the Frenchman and loosed his helmet. The girlish face of the young squire was white as chalk and the haze of death was gathering over his violet eyes, but a faint smile played round his lips as he looked up at his English comrade. "'I shall never see Beatrice again,' he whispered. "'I pray you, Nigel, that when there is a truce you will journey as far as my father's chateau, and tell him how his son died. Young Gaston will rejoice, for to him come the land and the coat, the war-cry and the prophet. See them, Nigel.' and tell them that I was as forward as the others. Indeed, Raoul, no man could have carried himself with more honour or won more worship than you have done this day. 
I will do your behest when the time comes. Surely you are happy, Nigel, the dying squire murmured, for this day has given you one more deed which you may lay at the feet of your lady-love. It might be so had we carried the gate, Nigel answered sadly. But by St. Paul I cannot count it a deed where I have come back with my purpose unfulfilled. But this is no time, Raoul, to talk of my small affairs. If we take the castle, and I bear a good part of it, then perchance all this may indeed avail. The Frenchman sat up with that strange energy which comes often as the harbinger of death. You will win your Lady Mary, Nigel, and your great deeds will not be three, but a score, so that in all Christendom there shall be no man of blood and coat-armor who has not heard your name and your fame. This I tell you, I, Raoul de la Roche, Pierre de la Bras, dying upon the field of honor. And now kiss me, sweet friend, and lay me back, for the mists close around me, and I am gone. With tender hands the squire lowered his comrade's head. But even as he did so there came a choking rush of blood, and the soul had passed. So died a gallant cavalier of France. And Nigel, as he knelt in the ditch beside him, prayed that his own end might be as noble and as debonair. End of chapter 20